Welcome everyone. I am Stu Halpern, Senior Advisor to the Provost here at Yeshiva University, and I'm here with my good friend, Dr. Daniel Reinhold. Dr. Reinhold is Professor of Jewish Philosophy at the Bernard Revel Graduate School of Jewish Studies here at Yeshiva University, and he also teaches at Yeshiva College and Stern College. He directs the Yeshiva College Honors Program as well as the Bernard Revel Graduate School's Doctoral Program. And we're here to talk about his new co-authored book, Nietzsche, Soloveitchik, and Contemporary Jewish Philosophy, which he wrote with Michael Harris. Daniel, welcome. Thank you, Steve. So in his book, if you can read this, The Philosophy of Bumper Stickers, author Jack Bowen, in discussing the we'll see who gets the last word genre of bumper stickers, cites the example of the sticker that reads, God is dead, signed Nietzsche. Underneath that is written, Nietzsche is dead, signed God. So who was Nietzsche? So Nietzsche is probably one of the most misunderstood figures in the history of philosophy. Um, to begin with some bare facts, he was born in Prussia in 1844 into a very religious home. He had generations of Lutheran ministers on both his mother's and father's side. And initially, that was actually the path that Nietzsche was primed to follow. He entered the University of Bonn, intending to study for the priesthood. Um, but clearly, that would soon change, given the quote that you've just given us. Uh, his life, by the way, was short and painful. He died in 1900, aged just 55, uh, but he'd lost his mind in 1889. So his productive life ended in his mid-40s, and even before that, he'd suffered from paralyzing headaches and nausea throughout his adult life that could sometimes confine him to bed for days at a time. But despite this, actually Nietzsche, who wrote the line, that which does not kill us, make us makes us stronger, may actually have said because of it, he would go on to write some of the most insightful works in the history of philosophy, um, insightful in both senses of the word. He um, showed great insight and incited reactions that were, uh, as we will discover, um, quite um, violent. I'll add a couple more quasi-biographical points. First, his works weren't widely read in his lifetime. Uh, soon after his death, actually even during his years of insanity, his works and his legend began to gain traction. Uh, and he very quickly became a major cultural figure for, for Germans. Uh, his work, Zarathustra, thus spoke Zarathustra, was distributed in a small paperback version to all German soldiers in World War I. Um, and second related point is that he was then co-opted in almost every corner of German culture and indeed anti-culture, most famously by the Nazis, who used or uh, better abused his thought and through that horrible misrepresentation, he became known as the philosopher of Nazi ideology. Um, and that's important because, number one, it's just a matter of empirical fact that he was explicitly used by the Nazis this way. And secondly, because it creates this monstrous, ill-informed public perception of him, uh, vestiges of which still remain for some. Um, and it also retarded serious scholarship on Nietzsche for a good while. I mean, why would any serious philosopher look to a Nazi philosophy for conceptual insights? So that in part is why he's one of the most misunderstood philosophers in the history of philosophy. Um, the Nazi reading has now been thoroughly discredited and rightly so. Uh, but he was certainly an explosive and controversial thinker, certainly a critic of religion, a critic of traditional morality, even of liberal democracy. 
Uh, but equally, he also viciously critiqued German nationalism. Uh, so he's certainly no Nazi. Um, but there is no denying he was, as mentioned, one of the most vicious critics of religion. And so what did he mean exactly by the death of God? So what Nietzsche means by this, or at least certainly the implications he draws from it, uh, is also, also often misunderstood. First, he doesn't mean there was once a God who then died. If you're an atheist, as Nietzsche was, you don't think there ever was such a being. Um, but he's making more of a cultural observation. Fact is, there was a time when in most people's minds, God ran the world. Think of the biblical picture uh, where God even makes it rain or not. Uh, so God was there and felt as a living presence in people's lives. And even if you move on a kind of a millennium from there, God was still needed for us to understand the natural world. So people would ask the question, why is there a world at all? And often that would lead to an argument, uh, the conclusion of which God exists. Um, so God was the explanation of the existence of the world. God was the explanation for politics as well. If you, you know, monarchs claimed that they had a divine right and morality was seen to be dependent on God as well. So when Nietzsche talks about the death of God, what he's pointing out is that simply is no longer the case, that very few people, and we can even include religious believers here, still think you need to invoke God to explain the natural world, to explain the political world, for many people even to explain morality. Um, and on top of that, there aren't, there are fewer people who would still experience God as this constant providential presence in their lives. So for Nietzsche, we live in an era where God is dead, since he's simply no longer an active part of our culture or our lives in the way he once was. Um, and that's, you know, ignoring the fact that there are plenty of people who simply don't believe in him at all. Uh, but again, I contend this idea, or at least what Nietzsche does with it, has been terribly misunderstood. Um, because rather than dancing on his grave, Nietzsche is profoundly concerned with the consequences of the death of God. I've already mentioned he was a critic of traditional morality, but he also actually believed that that morality is entirely bound up with belief in God. So if you kill God, you kill morality. And at the point at which he was writing, Nietzsche thought people hadn't yet recognized this. So they were happily getting on with being moral actors in the traditional way, while maybe being atheists. And Nietzsche's greatest fear was that when they actually understood that atheism undercuts the only justification we have for morality, well, he thought all hell would break loose. So in a sense, rather than being responsible for Nazism, he predicted it. Right when when the gods away in this case been done away with or killed the Nazis will play or if not then some other monstrous regime so nihilism or the death of of all values was actually Nietzsche's greatest fear and he saw it coming once people really understood what the death of God meant and much of his work is an attempt to find value in a world where the, to him, illusory nature of traditional religious and metaphysical accounts of the world had been uncovered. Um, and in relation to the book, I actually think that's the first important point of contact with Rav Soloveitchik. Uh, Rav Soloveitchik 
would agree at this point, you can't necessarily prove the existence of God. You can't necessarily give some systematic metaphysical picture of the world. So his question is similarly, how does the life of faith maintain meaning in a world like that? Um, so this is kind of, I suppose, you know, uh, the challenge to both Ralph Soloveitchik and Nietzsche is finding meaning when the traditional scaffolding for meaning in their various um, worlds has fallen away. And what did uh, Ralph Soloveitchik think of Nietzsche? So Ralph Soloveitchik clearly read Nietzsche. He quotes him a number of times, though I should mention my claim isn't that he's reacting specifically to reading Nietzsche. Um, my claim is more conceptual that Ralph Soloveitchik and Nietzsche are in agreement on a number of, of, of conceptual themes. If we take the Nietzschean critique of religion um, and we start there, for Nietzsche, religions are just fictions created to make human beings feel better. Nietzsche thought that the world was terrible, that kind of the, the, the truth was terrible, that people suffered horribly, that life was... Um, as he put it, he quotes the wisdom of Silenus and says, better not to have been born, uh, but given that you have been born, second best is to die soon. So the world is full of suffering. Um, and Nietzsche was concerned with false attempts and life-denying, as he put it, attempts to deal with that picture. Um, so attempts that, for example, create an illusion like religion that both explain why you're suffering um, which is because you're a sinner and because the world's a bad place and because you shouldn't be tempted by it. Um, and also, in a way, attempts to solve that problem by promising some other world in which everything works out in the end. Um, to Nietzsche, that's just A, an illusion. B, it is very damaging to human psychology. It prevents great people from reaching their potential. So it would prevent the great creative individuals, like to him a Beethoven or a Shakespeare, um, from reaching their potential. Religion as a way of life does that. It's psychologically damaging. It leads you to torture yourself for being guilty before God. And he thinks that this is, a number one, just false. Number two, denies value to this world in favor of some other world. And see number three, is psychologically damaging. Now, I happen to think that Rav Soloveitchik agrees with all of those points. So, for example, number one, he does seem to think that the world is a world full of suffering. So, for example, in, in one of his works, Cold or Didofek, he famously speaks about Judaism having a realistic approach to man, where evil is an undeniable fact, where there are hellish torments in this world, and anybody who denies this is just deluding themselves. So he seems to agree that the world is a tough place full of suffering. What's interesting is he doesn't think that religion is necessarily some type of answer to that. He thinks that it's certainly a way of dealing with it, but it doesn't answer it and doesn't get rid of it. So one of the most famous tropes in Ralph Soloveitchik's thought that anybody who's read Ralph Soloveitchik has probably come across is the idea that true religious experience, the deepest form of religious experience, is one of conflict. Um, Halakha, he even says, 
is about expressing that conflict, not even solving it generally. That's kind of the general thrust of what he says about it. So number one, he agrees with Nietzsche about the nature of the world. And number two, he agrees that one shouldn't try to give illusory solutions to that problem. The major difference between them, however, is that while Nietzsche would say that religion is a life-denying answer, an answer to this that prevents creative individuals from expressing themselves, Rav Soloveitchik's version of religion, version of Judaism, is that it's a religion that doesn't do that. It's actually a religion that is in itself creative. It's life-affirming. And he would agree with Nietzsche about those religions that are life-denying, that they're terrible. And he, they exist in Judaism. There's no question that Judaism does have interpretations of the world, philosophically speaking, that would do all the things Nietzsche hates. But what's so interesting is Rav Soloveitchik seems to also marginalize those readings, sometimes explicitly criticize them. And once or twice, he actually quotes Nietzsche positively um, as a as having got that right. And so that's a taste of what Rav Soloveitchik thought of Nietzsche. And for those interested in learning further, I highly recommend the book. And, and what did Nietzsche think of the Jews? What did he think of Judaism? So Nietzsche was long thought of as some terrible anti-Semite, as mentioned earlier, um, as somebody whose thought lay some kind of foundation for Nazism. In truth, when it comes to, to Jews or the Jewish people, Nietzsche often has all manner of very, very positive things to say um, about about the Jews. Firstly, he loves what he would call the Old Testament. So he loves kind of the, I guess, you know, the Tanakh. He despises the New Testament, and he thinks putting the two together into a single book, as was done by Christianity, um, was a great sin against literature. Um, but he loves the Old Testament precisely for the reason that Many of us sometimes as moderns are embarrassed about it because it contains these great heroes who are warriors who, you know, um, are kind of literary figures for him who are very attractive precisely because of their moral imperfections. So he sees great heroes um, in the Old Testament. More than that, contemporary Jews, he also has immense respect and admiration for. He speaks of the extraordinary genius of the Jews. And in large part, he thinks this because he believes that what they've done with their suffering, and there he, he talks of them being profoundly schooled in you know centuries and generations of suffering, and what they've managed to achieve as a result of that is actually a model for how one ought to deal with suffering. So he admires contemporary Jews. He admires ancient Jews. He admits, by the way, that when he was young, he took a brief sojourn, as he puts it, in the very infected territory of anti-Semitism. So growing up, the kind of common or garden anti-Semitism of 19th century Germany was something that he actually, you know, at one point, there are certain early letters where he says certain things that are deeply troubling. Um, but we now have not only his published writings, 
where he has all manner of positive things to say about the Jewish people, but also certain letters of his, and one specifically to his sister, who was a virulent anti-Semite and married uh, a leader of the anti-Semitic movement in Germany. Um, and he writes to her that her marrying him goes against everything he stands for um, and how upset he is at having been co-opted by anti-Semites. Um, on the other hand, though, Nietzsche believes that he despises Judaism. But the reason for that is the reason he despises all religions, because he thinks that Judaism as a religion is going to be a life-denying form of religion that prevents creativity, that relies on other worlds for its value, etc., etc. Um, and it's certainly true that he would not like the halachic system. Um, where his in initial critiques of religion, he often begins talking about the priestly Jews who gave birth to this form of ritualistic and moralistic religion where there's kind of notions of, you know, purity and impurity, and these are deeply life-denying and problematic and lead to sin and the kind of tortuous guilt that he found so destructive. So he certainly would not like Judaism. But of course, the point of the book is that Rav Soloveitchik tries to show that that very Judaism that he might have thought led to this type of life-denying version of religion didn't in fact do so. So let's segue now for a few minutes to a game. Inspired by my colleague Rabbi Ari Lam, who introduced me to the podcast Conversations with Tyler, which is a wonderful podcast led by Tyler Cowan, an economist from George Mason University, I'm going to ask you a series of uh, prompts, and I would like you to respond with Overrated or underrated? Okay. With a brief explanation of why you're staking that position. Overrated or underrated? Let's go. American football. I could get myself in big trouble here, couldn't I? <laughs> this is definitely being recorded. Oh, wow. Overrated. <laughs> Tea time. Underrated. The British royal family. Oh, that's a good one. The British royal family. I'd go with underrated. I like them. I think they're harmless and they do a lot of good work. I don't think they're particularly significant, but I'd go with underrated. The American holiday of Thanksgiving. Underrated. Best thing about America since we moved here. We love Thanksgiving. Co-authoring a book. Underrated. It's very useful, particularly when you're writing a book of this nature. When you write this kind of thing, you often send it out to colleagues to get some kind of reaction. Um, so to have that reaction immediately from a colleague when you're writing it actually is really helpful. And now that I'm writing other stuff kind of on my own again, I kind of miss it. How about reading Tanakh as a philosophical text? I think I'm going to go a bit unexpected here and go with overrated. I'm not convinced that it should be read as a philosophical text. Um, I think there are all kinds of things that it should be kind of plundered for. I'm not sure philosophy is one of them. Reading the philosophy of Rav Cook, of Abraham Isaac Cook, in English. Hmm. That's a difficult one. I'm going to go with underrated. 
only because I think that the more people who are introduced to his thought, the better. And therefore, if people can only get into that through the English, it's probably worthwhile. Yeshayahu Leibovitz. Underrated. <laughs> A very interesting, provocative philosopher um, who agree or disagree uh, certainly provokes a lot of interesting discussion. Trying to reconcile the Mishnah Torah and the Morin Avuchim. Not sure. Not sure. I was going to say overrated because I'm not sure it's actually so difficult to do in truth. But then there are certainly people who would disagree with me on that and say it is quite difficult, so they'd go underrated. And that's the perfect answer, because as we know, the Rambam um, delights in contradictions, so I'm going to go with both. Trying to have a philosophical argument with Professor David Schatz. <laughs> oh, boy. Um, underrated. Uh, we once went to the Mets together and we were watching, well, you know, given that there wasn't much happening on the field because it was the Mets, uh, we, we sat there discussing philosophy and just presumed everybody else was probably doing the same. Final question. What is your next project? Uh, so my next project kind of grows out of this one. We mentioned Nietzsche thought that you know, the world was terrible, that kind of the world was just full of suffering and this suffering couldn't really be ever solved. But he does once um, in his earliest work speak of the world being justified as an ascetic phenomenon, that art in some way, at least if it doesn't justify existence, it at least makes our experience of life in some way um, worthwhile. Um, and what I'm looking to do in my new work is to bounce off something again Ralph Soloveitchik writes. Um, he writes in Worship of the Heart that it's the ascetic experience, kind of artistic um, experience again, that is the only way that you can get in direct contact with God, have a direct relationship with God. Uh, so I'm hopefully, and this is in its very early stages, so we'll see what happens with it. Uh, but what I'd like to do is try to look at what that means. What would it mean to have an aesthetic conception of God, to read, for example, the picture of God in the Tanakh um, from an artistic perspective and how that might be a better way of relating to God than reading it from, say, a moral perspective. Um, I'm thinking here of, for example, the, us being deeply attracted to figures within art who are imperfect. We don't like the good guy, right? We like the bit more complex anti-hero. Um, and the idea of God as an anti-hero, I actually find quite interesting because I think that way we won't have to explain away the immoral things that sometimes, um, you know, are attributed to God, at least by our standards, in the Tanakh. And to see him more as an anti-hero might also help reintroduce the notion of fear of God or awe of God that us moderns aren't terribly good at. Um, I'll probably get excommunicated for it, but that'll be the next project. Daniel, always fascinating to chat. Thank you so much for your time. Pleasure. Thank you, Stu. Thank you for listening to this episode of Scroll Up, a Yeshiva University podcast. 
please be sure to subscribe to us on iTunes, Anchor, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. This episode is produced by Stu Halpern and David Chabinski and edited by David Chabinski. Until next time.